here to worship God, and in his hands, he makes new things. He, he makes new things of us. If any of you are here thinking, look at me, I'm coming along, I'm doing great, I'm a, 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 a follower of Christ, and I'm, I'm, I'm maturing in the path, I'm doing great, well, guess what? You're missing the point because you are always going to be in this process of God making us new. And it, it's an important thing for us to shift our perspective on our lives to understand we are going to be a work in progress. We're not going to overcome our problems and be able to say, yay, it's done, I'm good, I'm good now, Lord, now I can get back to the rest of my life. We are always going to be a work in progress. But here's the good news. We're going to be a work in progress in the hands of a gracious, kind, gentle, and loving God who even in those moments where it hurts, is able to shape us and mold us and guide us through it to something more beautiful than we could ever ask or imagine. And so this morning as we, as we spend our time in God's word, I just want to encourage you to, to think of yourself, to consider your life as being that, that, that clay in the potter's hand. Not just to help you with this one issue in your life, but the entirety of your life being that clay in the potter's hand and trust and believe that he is doing a new work. He's making you new and in beautiful and wonderful ways. So uh, again, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look specifically at a verse where, where Jesus, if you remember, he's on this journey. We're <clears throat> Every Sunday from here until Easter, we'll be journeying with Jesus as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as he does, he, he gives us, he, he gifts us these beautiful lessons and, and encouragements on how he is preparing us to, to be a, a family of God, the community of faith, after he has returned back to heaven to continue to walk by faith, to be shaped by the good news which he came and proclaimed and embodied that he lived and died for. And so we want to look at Mark chapter 10 and pick up in verse 17, and consider how Jesus is preparing us for the road ahead. Follow along as I read for us from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, <coughs> loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. 
Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Father God, we thank you for your word. Because, Lord, the, your word is eternal. It does not return to you void. It is fruitful and effective in, in, in bringing about maturity and wholeness of our lives that we long for. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would be fruitful and effective in our hearts and minds today. Conform us to your will through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we mentioned, Jesus is setting out on a journey. Right? Even here in Mark, Mark says very matter-of-factly, he's setting out on a journey. And if we were to zoom out from this moment and look ahead a few chapters in our Bible, we would see where he's going. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's heading where he would suffer and die and three days rise again. And this portion of Jesus' journey is nestled between two very telling moments. The previous verses in the chapter, Jesus is kind of talking with his disciples and teaching them about their need to be childish. They have to be childish. Can you believe it? Jesus is telling his, his disciples, hey, you need to be more childish. Now, listen, this is not an invitation to be childish the way you and I think it is, right? I mean, if that was, if Jesus told me to be childish, I'd say game on, right? <laughs> I've got some great ideas, Jesus. Just let me share them with you, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying, right? Because just before we meet this man who runs up to Jesus, there's a crowd of people gathered around Jesus, and they're bringing these children to Jesus so that he could lay hands on them and bless them. And his disciples are saying, whoa, 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 keep the children away. Jesus' time is too valuable to have him waste it with these little children. So after Jesus rebukes his disciples, he teaches them something about the kingdom of God. This being that it's not the strong and the powerful and those who have earthly wisdom who will enter the kingdom of God, but it's those who are like these children, those who are childish in their faith, those who are humble and meek, you know, before the world spoils their trusting nature, those who are dependent on God, who, who know what it means <clears throat> to trust in one bigger and greater than them. And so then on the other side of our passage, Jesus goes on to again remind his disciples of what's ahead for him. The, the, the passion week where he's going to face being flogged and, and spat on and mocked and then killed and then rising again from the dead three days later. And so these two passages on either side of Mark 10, verse 17 to 31, remind us. They're meant to remind us and help us understand that it's not by our own strength or wisdom or wealth that God's plan is accomplished. Your, your, your life is the way it is, not because of your strength or your wisdom or your ability to, to gather up treasures in this world, but because of the God who created you, working in your life, guiding and directing you, leading you through the circumstances of your life. And so... It's really only as a child or a disciple with a childlike faith to trust and follow Jesus will we see through to completion and fulfillment the promises of God. 
So I think the problem for many of us with this is that, that we grow up, right? We, we've learned to live our lives. We've been around other people. We've grown skeptical. We, we've, we've gained life experiences that kind of weaken our childlike faith, and instead we develop an independent and self-righteous spirit. We, we've learned what it means to depend upon ourselves. You know, someone lets us down or, or, or betrays us, and so we decide it's easier not to trust others so easily. Our, our love isn't reciprocated, or, 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 or we don't fit in with certain groups. And so we learn to protect ourselves by not engaging and trusting ourselves with other people, right? We find other people unreliable or untrustworthy, so, so we depend upon ourselves rather than on others. You know, if you can't trust someone else to do it, you've got to do it yourself, right? That's a, a lesson we've learned from the hard-knock life that we've learned to live, right? In, in fact, here's the thing. Independence has almost become a virtue in our culture, Right? Like you're, you're thought of as being better and stronger if you are able to do things in your own strength, if you don't need other people to help you accomplish it. So I think we get a taste of success and, and we see our own hand in making it happen. So what do we do? We just trust ourselves even more. And, and here's the thing about how we relate to one another, how we learn to trust ourselves rather than other people. All of that gets translated into how we relate to God. We, we take these skills and ways of, of, of relating to one another and operating, and, and we translate that over to this must be how I'm supposed to relate to God and how I'm supposed to interact with him. But, but here's what Jesus teaches us. He teaches us that this is actually the opposite of what it means to be one of his disciples. The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, right? We've, we've read them before, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. They're, they're, they're littered with words that our world would use to describe a weak person. Words like poor in spirit, meek, those who mourn, those who are merciful and peacemakers, those who are persecuted. If you asked the person, a person on the street, some random stranger, what do they think of these words? They would, I would imagine, say that these words describe a weak person, not a strong person. But these are the very people, the very ones, who are considered first and blessed in the kingdom of God. And so before we close this morning, I hope that we will see that Jesus' disciples in this world are called to be last, but, but will be first in the kingdom of God. That, that our aim in this world would not be to be first, but would be to actually Understand what it means to be last with the confidence to know that we will be first in the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus tells us in Mark 10, 31. He says, many who are honored as first and most in this world will be last in the kingdom of God. But those disciples of Jesus who are honored last by the world and the powers that govern it will be first in the kingdom of God. Seems like a simple principle, but, but be warned, church that this is not some simple discipleship principle. It's not such a simple thing to, to make the aim of our life to be last in this world so that we will be first in heaven. To be last in this world and, and a servant of all may actually seem very simple on paper, but it's a very difficult principle to live out and embody. Just consider the man in our passage. Verse 17, Mark tells us that, that a man runs up to Jesus. 
kneels before him and asks him a very important question. Now, you read this passage in Luke's gospel, and Luke would tell us that the man's a ruler. Matthew's gospel tells us that the man is young. But all three gospels have one thing in common when they tell this story of this man who runs up to Jesus, and that is that he's a rich man, that he's a man with much wealth. In other words, church, it's important that we see that this man's wealth is most important to us understanding the situation here in the gospel. The question he asked Jesus is, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Already thinking in terms of riches. Right away, we understand from this question that this man, we understand how this man looks at the world around him, how he understands good versus bad, righteous versus unrighteous. See, even by referring to Jesus as a good teacher, He's doing so in such a way that makes like a moral judgment, as if he, he knows that Jesus is a good, morally good person. It's, it's almost like he's saying, Jesus, obviously you're good. What do I have to do to earn the quality of life that you have? What do I have to do to get what you have, right? Now, as I read the passage in Mark 10 uh, a few moments ago, I wonder how many of us felt surprised by Jesus' response, right? We, we believe at Trinity and in the church, that we are saved by faith alone, not by our works, not by any good deeds we produce or, or, or try to share with others, but, but purely by our trust in Jesus. And so then when we hear Jesus' response, did it, did it evoke a response? It's almost as if in verse 19 that Jesus was saying, eternal life actually is something that you can earn. It's something you can merit, Right? He starts, he, allows, uh, he starts by listing the second half of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Side note, don't defraud is actually not in the Ten Commandments, but uh, scholars believe it's kind of an al alluding to this idea that don't covet, that, that defrauding someone of their riches is a way of coveting what they have and getting it from them. And it's, it's possible that what Jesus was pointing out, that, that some of the riches that this man had came uh, through defrauding others because he saw what they wanted, he wanted it, and he took it, and he made it his treasure, right? Anyway, that's just a, a side note. But these are all things we can do as laws. We can obey all these things. We can, we can, uh, we can merit an obedience to the law by, by following these things in our actions, in our outward ability. In fact, here's the thing. It was a strong Jewish belief that keeping the law led to life. If you look, were to look back at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 16, you'd read Moses' instructions that were behind this belief. He, he writes this. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. And so by referencing the second half of the Ten Commandments, it's almost like Jesus is affirming this belief that, that we can actually work for our salvation, that our obedience to the law can actually influence the outcome of whether or not we'll have eternal life. It's almost as if Jesus is saying that, 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 that God sees our good deeds and says, okay, you can come into the kingdom of God, right? 
But don't you think it's interesting that as Jesus responds to this man, he starts with the second half of the Ten Commandments? I mean, if you've ever read the Ten Commandments, you know that Jesus is like picking up in the middle of the book. He's not, he's not starting from the beginning saying, hey, let's scroll back and look at the first half, right? So what happened to the first half of the Ten Commandments? Well, I think they're there. I think they're there. You just have to kind of look a little bit further on in the passage. The, the, the first half of the Ten Commandments are the commandments that, that tell us that we're to worship and love one God, that, that we're not to make some idol made with human hands, that we're not to worship anything other than the God who created us, the God who went first in rescuing us out of slavery in Egypt, and the God who promised to lead us and guide us into the promised land, right? So look, look closely again at verse 21, because I think the first half of the Ten Commandments are there. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. See, Jesus, Jesus doesn't rebuke the man. <clears throat> he doesn't call him a hypocrite. He doesn't, doesn't immediately point out the man's sin, but lovingly points to the truth that only God can know. And maybe it's, maybe it's inaccurate to say that he points to the truth. Maybe he, he, he guides the man to the place where the man realizes for himself these, this, the first half of the Ten Commandments. What he does is he, 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 he guides this man to realizing that though his external obedience to the law is on point, there's still something broken and missing because the man's internal posture of love and worship for God alone is broken and is divided. You may remember the, the Old Testament story of when God commanded Samuel to go and anoint a new king. After Saul had been uh, an unfaithful and disobedient king, God says, you know, I'm going to raise up a new king that I'll anoint as king over Israel. And so he sends Samuel to uh, a man named Jesse's house and and tells him what he's doing, and Jesse starts parading his sons in front of him. He starts with the oldest and wisest and strongest and works his way down to the, the youngest. And each son that goes by, Samuel's told, nope, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. He's not it. But what's telling for us is that God tells Samuel to say something to Jesse in response to Jesse's shock, right? Eventually, Jesse's youngest and least experienced son is brought in from the field. He's watching the sheep, and God says, that's my king. That's the one I want to anoint as king over Israel. And Jesse's surprised. He's shocked. And in response to that shock, God tells Samuel, or Samuel says to him, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, church, I think sometimes we get caught up in this in, in our own kind of community of faith where we, are, are, we become almost preoccupied with what do other people think of me? Or how do they see me? How, how are my actions witnessed by other people and does that reflect the character of God? And that's not a horrible thing to say, by the way. You shouldn't beat yourself up because you, you have that thought or you're wondering about it. But what we miss on this is God is not just concerned with our outward appearance. He's actually focused and looking at what is the condition of our heart's posture, our inward appearance. Because though we may only be able to see what's on the outside, God, in his wisdom and ability, is able to see the condition of our hearts. 
See, though the rich young ruler had conformed his life to the law on the outside, the truth was that his heart belonged to something other than God. And, and this is what Jesus kind of puts in the spotlight before him. This is what, what Jesus is lovingly guiding him, guiding him to realize and to pay attention to. It, it, it's, it's the same principle that, that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Matthew. That we can't serve two gods. We can't serve both God and money because we will love the one and we will hate the other. There's, there's really no coexisting of these two loves within the heart of mankind. Right? So when Jesus says to this man, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, it's like this, this light shines on a part of the man's life that he would rather not be seeing right now. That, 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 that his heart is not unified, but is rather divided. See, it's the, it's the core of the Ten Commandments. It's the core of the first half of the Ten Commandments, certainly all of them, but, but before Moses articulates or God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, we're told that God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me, right? Because of what God did in going first, in rescuing and redeeming his people, because of who he is, we shall have no other God before him. We shall have a unified heart, a single focus of our hearts. And not only that, but we won't bow down to any other idols. We won't worship anything else in the place of where God alone deserves our worship. And so to have more than one God is to ignore this truth. It's to have a divided heart. And a divided heart can't love the Lord. The, a divided heart can't love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Because, because we've given part of our heart away. We've devoted some of the, 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 the focus of our heart on other things other than the God of all creation. And so here in Mark 10, Jesus looks on the man's heart and exposes his devotion to the idol of wealth and riches that the man ultimately ultimately couldn't surrender. Church, we can only follow Jesus. We can only really follow Jesus without abandon once we learn to lay down <clears throat> our idols and laying down the idols of our heart is probably one of the most difficult things we can do in this world. I'm not trying to oversimplify it or, or make it seem easier than it really is. Laying down the idols of our hearts can be one of the most difficult things that we do by faith in this world. Because we don't realize, first of all, we don't necessarily even realize what idols are there. We don't give attention to the fact, what are the things that are competing for God's attention in my own heart? And once we do, it's very hard to fully abandon ourselves in faith to God and let go of those things we've learned to trust in and depend on. Look again at, at Mark chapter 10, verses 22 to 26. Disheartened by the saying, he, the man, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it, it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Right? Even the disciples were were amazed by how Jesus interacted with this rich young ruler. Right? I mean, it it kind of seemed to them at that point at least that, that, that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. That, 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 that this man should have been under God's blessing. And, and, and look at, I mean, his life is all together. How, how is this a problem, Jesus? But that's not the case. That, 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 that earthly treasures, that possessions, that riches, that wealth, whatever it is, is not a sign of God's blessing on your life. It's not a sign that you're doing things right and you're faithful and walking with Jesus. And so Jesus offers them this proverb that that seems so ridiculous and hard that it actually drives home the point to his disciples. It's it's impossible to be saved apart from God taking initiative in your life. It's impossible for us to inherit eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved apart from God going first and accomplishing that work on our behalf. If you think trying to thread a camel through the eye of a needle is difficult, try being devoted to your wealth and to God. Church, it can't be done. It's impossible. I mean, just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that having a lot of money and wealth is sinful or even wrong. The Bible doesn't say that that money is evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. That's the heart posture. When we, when we hold in, in equal balance our love of money and our love of God, bad things go happen, right? It's impossible. It doesn't work. We don't love either of them truly because we're not devoted to either of them fully. The heart divided, the heart that is divided is unable to love God with all of itself. Now, here's the thing. Jesus tells this man to go and sell all that he possesses and give to the poor. Is that binding on all Christians? No. I mean, giving up our wealth and our position and status and comfort, it's not binding on all believers, on all followers of Christ. It's not this principle that goes for all disciples of Jesus, but what does go for all disciples of Jesus is that we would have an undivided heart. See, church, I think there are some of us who actually relate to this man. I'm not even talking about how much money you have in your bank account. Just the possessions you have in your life are an idol, are a treasure. But there are other things that that can be that treasure, that can be that idol. I mean, they don't have to, it doesn't have to be what we possess. I think the, the disciples, they, they struggle with what Jesus says, but they get it. They understand it. Who then can be saved? It's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven because it's impossible for a, a person who has learned to trust in their possessions, learned to trust in their fill-in-the-blank, and trying to trust in God is impossible No human being can. Now, if I were to close 
our time in the Word this morning, that would be a pretty hopeless place for us to end, right? There's no possible way. But that's not the gospel we preach, is it? Because this is where the gospel comes full circle. Not just where the gospel comes in, because guess what? Part of the gospel is understanding the bad news, which is my human heart is divided. I struggle to be fully devoted to God alone and instead learn to trust in other things. That's the reality of the gospel that we have to embrace also, that there is a bad. But the good, the place where the the gospel comes full circle for us is in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of God, salvation is 100% a work of God, and it's possible because of God. Laying down the, the idols of our heart, all of this is impossible with men, but possible with God. So how can this rich young ruler inherit eternal life? Only because, again, God took the initiative to come to this earth to make a way where there was no way. This is the Romans 5.8 passage where God shows his love for us and yet in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Christ didn't die for us because he saw us striving to be good people and said, well, why don't I meet them part of the way? Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet in that place where it is impossible for man, it was possible for God because he came to us, he descended down to earth in the form of man, became like one of us, that he might be like one of us and go before us. And as our representative, bear the penalty of our sin that we might share with him in the reward of his victory. See, this is the gospel in its, its entirety. I, I love the way Tim Keller explains the gospel. He, he explains it like this. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. I would challenge some of us to, to just stop there and ask yourself, do I believe this, right? Do I believe this part of the, like, I, I'm a good person. I may not be perfect, but I'm a good person. I got that going for me, right? No, still not enough. Because actually, if we peel back the layers of our heart, we would find that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. If you actually examine your desires and your motives and and those, those deep recesses of your soul, you would see, as I have seen in myself, that I am more sinful and flawed in myself than I ever dared believe. But then we can move on. Once we, once we get that, once we learn that, once we begin to accept that maybe that's true, then we can move on because Keller goes on to say, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Right? Like if we just stopped with this first half, all we would feel is guilt and shame. We'd be embarrassed. We wouldn't want to talk to anyone. We'd be afraid to show up at church because everyone's going to be judging us and, 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 and I'll have to hide in the corner or something like that. But the reality is, and this is the, 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 the mystery of the gospel, is that though we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, we are at the very same time more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ. So it's not because of any strength we possess or wisdom we've obtained or knowledge of the Bible or, 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 or how holy we look on the outside 
but only because God makes it possible so that though we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, we would be more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This, this is the gospel, plain and simple, church. You and I don't bring anything to the, to the equation. Actually, we do bring something. We bring our broken and sinful hearts. That's what we bring, right? It, it is impossible with man, with, with, for man to, to have an undivided heart for God. But with God, it's possible. So the rich young ruler thought he had to prove his worth or earn his acceptance and he misses the point. He misses what Jesus is showing, the truth, that, that Jesus accepts him and loves him in the depth of his brokenness and sin. And he calls him into that undivided heart. So what Jesus was inviting him to do by selling his possessions was, in a sense, to repent of his idolatry. It wasn't to prove his worth. It was to say, hey, come and follow me. Lay down your sin, lay down your idolatry, lay down these things that you, that you look to for your comfort and your security, and follow me. And so this invitation to sell, was, sell his possessions was an invitation into repentance and to turn his back on his wealth and to worship God and God alone. See, church, the difficulty of Jesus' invitation to come and follow him comes in the surrender of our idols. I think sometimes when we talk to people about the gospel, we say, oh, all you have to do is confess and believe. That's harder than we think. That, I mean, that, that's, that's difficult to turn away from our life of sin and turn in complete dependence and trust in God. See, the idol for the rich young ruler was his possessions. And again, as I said before, many of us, these possessions are our idols as well. We have bank accounts. We have working cars. We've got houses. We've got, you know, we've got, you know, special headphones or whatever we, you know, work out of the gym with. We've got all these things that we treasure and hold dear to us. And we say, you know what, I just got to get through, like going to the gym. I got to get through this work day. I can't wait to get to the gym because it's going to be so much better once I've, once I've had a chance to kind of get my body moving and feel better. It, become, it can become like an idol in our lives when we think that's what's going to make us happy. For many of us, these possessions are our idols as well. But don't be fooled to think that this is the only possible idol that stands in our way of an undivided and devoted heart. For some of us, we treasure our personal comfort. For some of us, it's sex. Some of us, it's our position in society. It's our status. Whatever it is, whatever our idols might be, Jesus invites us to lay them down, to remove them from our lives so that we could be free to follow him, so that there won't be this tension of, do I go this way or that way? Jesus is calling me this way, but man, I'd really like to go this way today. Right? So I, I, I think we've kind of developed a Christianity where we can have our cake and eat it too, where we can follow Jesus and trust in him, but when it gets hard, we can kind of do what feels more comfortable for us. Right? But when we, when we lay down our idols and, and trust him and follow him, we find that Jesus offers us a few promises to close our passage out with this morning. Look at verses 29 to 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands 
For my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He offers us two promises. As the, as, as the rich young ruler started off saying, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you can lay down your treasures, lay down those idols of your heart and follow me. And if you do, you will receive eternal life. Not just in the age to come, but even today. You'll receive the benefits of, uh, of the kingdom of God here and now. But nestled between these two promises is, is a promise that for some of us probably isn't such a cool promise. It's the promise of persecution. And this is something that, that, that Mark's readers would have been well aware of because the Christians were persecuted in Rome in these days. And, and so for Mark to say that, like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Persecutions, uh, I get it. Following Jesus, it, there's a promise that there will be persecution. But Jesus' promise is not just for those early readers of Mark, is it? It's also for Jesus' disciples today. So not only does he make the promise of eternal life and the benefit of being a part of the family of God and the kingdom of God, but he says for us disciples today, we shouldn't be surprised by persecution. We shouldn't be surprised by hardship and suffering in this world. But here is what's unique about the second promise. Unlike the other two promises, the second promise is it's only temporary. Suffering and, and, and is a reality in this world that none of us can escape. But, but sharing in Jesus' suffering reminds us that we will also share in his glory. That we'll share in, in the promises of being with him in glory. And so church, Jesus prepares us for the road ahead by inviting us into that place where he calls us to examine what the idols of our heart may be. See, I think we need to hear that God offers you his love, that he offers us his love. And it isn't like the world offers. It's not an exchange, right? It's not, I'll give you this for that. There is no even exchange in, in any of this. You can't earn it or achieve it or save up for it. That's the beauty of the good news that Jesus brings us, that, that God's love is free to us. Church, I want us to know this gospel truth deep down in our souls. That though we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, we are at the same time more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I want us to know that truth. But the reality we have to accept is that no amount of my preaching this to us is going to change your mind. You need, you need to hear Jesus say this to you yourself. You need to hear him take this truth and, and, and ground it and root it deep within yourself for yourself. You need, to, you need to hear it from Jesus and to do this. There are some idols you need to be aware of in your heart. All of us Every single one of us will do battle with an idol. And those idols may change from season to season in your life. But until you are aware of them and are able to surrender them, you will not hear Jesus say fully, 
how deep and wide his love is for you. And so to, to hear him say this, I want to encourage us to, 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 to pay attention to where these idols might be and remove them so that we can follow him more closely and fully and listen to him. There's a theologian named G.K. Beale, and, and he says, an idol is whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. It's whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Let me say that again, and I, and I want you to think about those places in your life, those places in your heart that might be not so much God, but an idol that is drawing you away from God, that is creating in you a divided heart. An idol is whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. It's whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Can I encourage us to think on this today? I don't want us turning around and walking away from Jesus in sorrow and grief because we just can't lay down this area of our heart. It's, this thing has become an idol in us. Maybe it's our possessions. Maybe it's our sense of control and, and power over a situation. But there are a number of things that claim loyalty in our hearts and our lives that belong to God alone. So can I encourage you today to, to think on this? Does, does something or someone besides Jesus Christ have ownership of your heart's trust? And, 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 and your heart, is your heart preoccupied by something or someone else? Is there something or someone other than Jesus who is the owner of your heart's loyalty and, and service and delight? Church, I, I believe we are meant to know and live in that place of God's full love and acceptance. It doesn't mean that you'll earn it. It just means you are unaware of how much you are loved and known by God. And the reason why we don't know that is because we have turned away from him in sorrow because we are unable to let go of, to lay down and surrender these idols of our hearts. And so today, would you think on those places in your heart, whatever those things may be that claim the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Maybe it's even a person in the church, a pastor, a teacher, who, who you, you believe in so much that they themselves have taken the place that is rightfully meant to be God alone. I want to encourage us, I know it's not the spring yet, but to do some spring cleaning. Let's clean up our hearts. Let's pull those things out of the corners of our, of our heart, dust, dust the, sweep the, the ground, clean it up, and recognize, am I fully devoted to God and God alone? There's a, a passage in, in 1 John chapter 2 where we're taught, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the, the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Church, every single one of us will have some desires of the flesh. We'll have some desires of the eyes. We'll have the pride of life in our lives 
going on unchecked. Let's not let it go on unchecked anymore. Let's, let, let's take some time to sit down with a pad of paper and a pen and, and ask God, God, reveal to me the idols in my heart. Search me. Know me. Understand those places where, where there are idols where the, that I am giving loyalty to something that is not you. And then give me the courage to lay it down and to trust you, to follow you, to leave, leave it there in the path and keep walking on and follow you. Now, here's the thing. I promise it won't be easy, but I promise it will be worth it. Why? Because the desires of the flesh and our eyes and the pride of life, it's all passing away, church. It will not provide you the comfort you think it will. It will leave you feeling more insecure and confused down the road than you could ever imagine. But the will of God abides forever. The promises of God are yours if we just trust and follow him rather than in the desires of the flesh and of the eyes. So let's do this. Identify those idols in our hearts. Let's confess them, lay them down, and let's move forward in the confidence that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever hope for. Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I, I know that uh, you know, in these few minutes that we've spent in the Gospel of Mark, that uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the idols of our hearts, the desires of our flesh. Lord, we confess many of us relate to the rich young ruler who, who, who want to follow Jesus, who want to inherit eternal life, who, who, who see the quality of Jesus' life and say, yeah, that's good, I want that. But when we realize that we're actually called to live with an undivided heart. We struggle, Lord. We're, we're afraid to take that step of faith to, to lay down these idols which we, we think have brought us comfort and guarded and guided us. But in reality, Lord, the true security we long for can only be found in, in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I, I pray... Uh, for a couple of things here. I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity. That, that, that as each of us go out from here, you would help bring clarity to those places in our lives where we have given loyalty to something that is not Jesus Christ. Give us clarity and give us courage, Lord, to then offer it back to you in prayer, to lay it down, to sacrifice it, Lord, on the altar and say, no more. And then, Lord, to have the strength to, to persevere, to push on, to follow you in faith, knowing that your will, the will of God, abides forever. May that bring us the comfort and the security that we know it will as we trust in Jesus and follow him all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.